In the last episode of Lilac Wine, the podcast, Abelia and Robert finally meet. If you haven't listened to that episode or the previous episodes of Lilac Wine, please do so. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Lilac Wine. Chapter 12. After Robert left, Abelia had a difficult time concentrating on her pruning. She didn't have the heart to tell Robert about her missing newspaper. With Art and Billy taking over the route over the last couple of weeks, her paper delivery had not been consistent as it was, and she had grown accustomed to not having the paper on most days. Plus, she didn't want to impose. After all, Robert was new to town, and she didn't want to overwhelm him on his first day of delivering the mail. She appreciated his gesture of assistance and genuinely enjoyed their brief visit. Although she was slightly embarrassed by her laughter, she was very much amused by the idea of being the Clara Barton of plants. She would most definitely think of that again the next time she wrapped gauze around a broken stalk or limb. Entering the humid air of the greenhouse, Abelia thought about what to make for dinner. She didn't want anything elaborate and quickly decided on her favorite dish, cold tomato soup. Walking down the narrow rows between the shelves of diverse plants and flowers in various stages of bloom, she gathered some tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and a lemon. Yes, the gazpacho would go very well with the lilac wine she had opened the night before, she thought. Abelia's greenhouse provided vegetables and fruits all year round. In addition to the flower propagation that she worked on, she always had readily available vegetables, herbs, and spices, and leafy greens. The lemon tree and orange tree she purchased via mail order many years ago as saplings now bore ample quantities of sweet fruit. Although she preferred her wine, nothing beat a cold glass of lemonade on a hot summer day. Few people in Lily Springs had been inside her greenhouse. Occasionally she spied children peeking through the glass and could only imagine what they thought was in there. During the cold winter months, she kept a stove burning constantly so that the delicate tropical flowers could thrive. Buckets of snow on top of the stove added so much humidity to the large chamber that it sometimes rained in the greenhouse during the winter. After gathering garlic and onions from the root cellar, she next headed to the kitchen and pulled a ceramic jar of cumin from the pantry. She had been making this gazpacho recipe for years. It was one of her favorite things to make, and the ability to produce it in early summer was a bonus. And every time she crushed those plum tomatoes in her hands, she thought about Rima, her neighbor in Cincinnati back when she was a child. 
Although she and her mother stood out in the heavily German neighborhood of Over the Rhine, they found a common soul in this small yet feisty immigrant from Spain, Andalusia to be specific. Rima Rediger was her name. She was married to Heinrich Rediger, a local brewer and occasional boxer. Although Rima provided plenty of hearty German meals for her husband, she also introduced him to the finer aspects of Mediterranean cooking and, in the process, introduced Colleen and Abelia to the wonders of the tomato. Although tomatoes were always growing in the Brody backyard, it was Rima who gave the tomato character. She told Abelia stories of Aztecs and conquistadors, of Moors and Castilians, often while crushing the wonderful fruit, as Rima called it. It was my people, the Moors, who invented this dish, she told Abelia while pounding herbs with a mortar and pestle. But we didn't have the tomato at first. It was the Aztecs who grew this fruit and the conquistadores who stole it. She told stories about the Aztec penchant for human sacrifice, often punctuating the tale by squeezing a tomato over a bowl as if it were a human heart. The tales frightened yet fascinated Abelia, and she sat for long hours in Rima's kitchen watching her cook and listening to her stories. It was there in that small kitchen in Ohio where Abelia tasted her first spoonful of the fragrant and delicious Andalusian gazpacho, and she has been making it ever since, using the same progeny from the seeds of Rima's tomatoes given to her on that very day. Those plants grew in her greenhouse, and Abelia tended to them with special care. When making gazpacho, Rima told the young Abelia, don't worry about the tomato seed. The tomato is the fruit of love and the seed. At this point, she held up a tiny yellow seed coated in sweet red flesh that dripped from her fingertips. Has tremendous power, passion. It has the power to set our hearts on fire. And with that, she crushed another in her hand, the chunky flesh oozing between her fingers, dripping into the large wooden bowl on the table. Abelia stared in fascination, her mouth and eyes wide. The church banned the tomato, Rima continued, picking up another red orb from the counter. They called it the devil's fruit, and you know what? They were right. Eve picked this from the tree of knowledge. Abelia frowned. Ah, said Rima. You don't believe me. You think that Eve stole an apple. She smiled and leaned forward, her bosom hovering over the bowl. That's what they want you to believe. They don't want you to be tempted by this fruit. So it was banished from the garden, just like Adam and Eve. It was banished to the furthest reaches of the globe. Rima was very theatrical. The kitchen was her stage, the only place she had true freedom and she used it. The Aztecs were not afraid of this fruit, she continued. Neither were my people. The Spanish called this palm de moro, apple of the Moors, and we used it to tell the devil that we were not afraid of him. Although Rima and her husband were Roman Catholic, she often told tales of the Moors, 
as if she were not merely of Moorish descent, but still actively fighting to conquer the Iberian Peninsula in the Middle Ages, Abelia knew that much of what Rima told her was highly exaggerated. No doubt her Moorish bloodline ran dry a thousand years ago or so, and she wasn't at all related to the Moorish general who was defeated at the Battle of Tours in 732. But she enjoyed the stories nonetheless, and Rima enjoyed telling them that was for sure. Before the tomato, we made aja blanco, which I will make for you one day. It is made from garlic and almonds, but the tomato, she handed Abelia the last tomato from the counter. The tomato changed everything. It is the fruit of life. It is the fruit of love. She stood up and wiped her hands on her apron. Go ahead, crush it. Abelia squeezed the firm fruit in her hand. The tomato exploded around her fingers as chunks of cool, red flesh fell into the wooden dish. Rima took hold of Abelia's hands, submerging them in the viscous mound. She squeezed her fingers together and swirled her hands in the bowl, demonstrating the proper technique to thoroughly blend the mixture. The tomato, seeds and all, swirled against the dark wood, the chunks of tomato getting smaller, becoming absorbed into the liquid. Rima removed her hands, once again wiping them on her apron before pouring in the remaining cumin and garlic. A fragrant cloud wafted from the dish, and Abelia felt sweat beating on her forehead. Rima then dropped cucumbers, onions, and peppers into the bowl and drizzled oil over the mixture, scolding Abelia if she slowed down the mixing process. Finally, Rima added stale breadcrumbs and topped it off with a squeeze of lemon and a stream of red vinegar which she poured from above Abelia's head. It splashed off her arms and into the deep dish. She counted out loud to five and then told Abelia to stop her mixing. It is done, she said. Now we let it sit. Rima handed Abelia a towel to wipe her hands. Before covering the bowl with a cloth, she placed a wooden spoon into the concoction and removed a taste. With a smile, she handed it to Abelia. First, you must try, she said. Rima studied Abelia's face, anticipating her reaction as the red, clumpy mixture entered her mouth. Abelia closed her eyes, letting the spice penetrate her taste buds. The fragrance floated into her sinuses, a simultaneous sensation that was unlike anything she had tasted before. See, said Rima, it's powerful. Nothing compares to a good gazpacho. She picked up the bulb, pulling the cloth over the rim. How do you think I got my husband? She added with a smile. Abelia often helped Rima in the kitchen while living in Over the Rhine. The last time she had Rima's gazpacho was at the gathering following Heinrich's funeral several years later. Abelia could tell that Rima had fallen apart following her husband's sudden death. She had made the gazpacho for the friends and neighbors who attended the funeral and then gathered in her backyard. The gazpacho tasted different. Rima knew it as well and, pulling Abelia aside, told her, that it was tainted by her tears. Gaspacho is for the passionate, she told Abelia. Her flame had died. She would never again 
make gazpacho. Rima returned to Spain shortly after, and Abelia never heard from her again. Abelia poured the vinegar into the bowl, a steady stream that splashed tiny red dots onto her apron. Rima had told her that the vinegar needed some air, and that the best way to add it to the gazpacho was from a high. After a few final stirs, she set it on the table to rest. When Abelia made gazpacho, she made enough to eat for the next day or more. The gazpacho seemed to get better with time, actually. With the large ice box she kept in the kitchen, she could sometimes enjoy the dish several days after it was made. It seldom lasted that long, however. Abelia savored the gazpacho on her porch that evening, sipping the lilac wine she so much loved. Fireflies flashed among the flowers in the garden. Crickets chirped and toads called out for mates. Abelia finished the bottle, humming along to the tune playing from her talking machine. Her head was little light as she blew out the lantern and headed for bed. The next day began like any other. Abelia had a light breakfast of bread and jam, orange juice made from the fruit of her greenhouse, and a bowl of strawberries. She then headed to the yard to work thinning the fruit of the apple trees in her orchard. She gathered tools and a ladder from the greenhouse and set out to the rear of her property. She enjoyed it back there. The trees blocked the view of the houses, and solitude reigned. The only sounds were those of nature. The rustling leaves in the breeze, the buzz of honeybees from the hives she kept nearby, and the calls of birds. Sometimes she packed a picnic lunch and sat under the shade of the large grafted fruit tree in the center of the orchard. She did that more near the end of summer, sampling the pears, peaches, and apples from that tree as she lay on a blanket watching the clouds float by. When the sun hit its highest point in the sky, Abelia put down her tools and headed back to the house. The sun was hot, and she would resume her work later in the afternoon. Now, however, it was time for some more of that gazpacho. The lunchtime gazpacho was always better than the meal from the previous evening. In fact, it was almost like a different dish. Sitting in the icebox, the gazpacho had more time to rest, the flavors intensifying. Abelia placed utensils on the small table on the porch and then entered the kitchen to prepare her bowl. Upon returning to her seat, she almost didn't notice the figure standing at the foot of the stairs. It was Robert. Once again, she was startled by his presence. It was not often she had people coming into her backyard, but there he was, standing in the grass, shielding his eyes from the intensity of the midday sun with a newspaper. Sorry, he said. I rang the bell, but I figured you were probably back here. I, I hope you don't mind. Abelia set down her bowl and straightened the pleats in her dress. She could feel her heart beating in her chest. No, of course not, she told him. Robert smiled, and the two stood, uncomfortably silent for a moment. Abelia moved a spoon with her fingertip, setting it under the rim of the bowl of gazpacho, not knowing what to say. Sensing this, Robert stepped up onto the porch, newspaper in hand. I must apologize about the newspaper, he said. He then noticed the set table. Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Brody. I didn't mean to interrupt your meal. That's all right, Mr. Bishop, Abelia replied. Robert inhaled deeply. That smells delicious, he said. May I ask what that is? It's gazpacho, she answered. Noticing the quizzical look on his face, she explained, 
cold tomato soup. It's a dish from Spain. One of my favorites, actually. Robert nodded, forgetting for a moment what brought him to the porch. Oh, here, he said, handing her the two newspapers. I didn't know about your newspaper until I returned to the post office yesterday. I almost came back last night, but didn't want to disturb you in the evening, so I brought them both today. Abelia thanked him as she took the newspapers from his hand. Not much news, actually, he said. At least, not good news, I should say. Abelia glanced at the front page. The war dominated the news, as usual, but what caught her attention was a headline proclaiming a crisis in Spain. She immediately thought of Rima. She often wondered what became of her, and whenever something about Spain appeared in the newspaper, she felt compelled to read the story, hoping for a clue, but knowing full well the futility of the quest. Although she was accustomed to unknowns and resigned herself to that reality, it didn't stop her from searching for evidence concerning the missing details of her past. Whether it was in regard to Rima or her elusive father, Abelia never gave up. She quickly scanned the article looking for any mention of Rima's town of Almeria and didn't realize that Robert was still talking. She set down the newspaper. I'm sorry, Mr. Bishop, you were saying? Nothing. I was just wondering if you have ever been to Spain. Abelia shook her head. Me neither. Never left the country, actually, he said. Who knows, maybe if this war goes on longer, I'll have the privilege of seeing France. What's left of it, anyway? Robert's sarcasm brought a little smile to Abelia's face. Let's hope not, she said. I've never been out of the country, either. Not been to too many places. She moved the spoon again. I've often dreamt about taking a steam liner to Europe, she added. I've always wanted to see Ireland, but the ship might get torpedoed or hit an iceberg. It was Robert who grinned this time. As long as you go on a ship that's not labeled as unsinkable, you should be okay. He looked down again at Abelia's dish. That smells wonderful. What's in it? He asked. Abelia briefly described the ingredients and couldn't tell if he was genuinely curious or if he was asking in a roundabout way for a taste. Either way, she didn't know how she felt about that. On one hand, it seemed rather forward of him to be inviting himself to lunch— bordering on rude, actually. Yet, on the other hand, she was surprised to feel a slight desire in herself to offer him a dish. She rarely ate with other people, and the prospect of sharing gazpacho with this young man both scared and intrigued her. And she didn't know why. If it were anyone else from town, there was no question an offer would not be made. But... Robert was not like anyone from town. Well, I'd better be going, said Robert. Need to wrap up some things at the post office. Enjoy your lunch. I hope I was not too intrusive. He smiled, said his goodbye, and descended the steps. Abelia wanted to ask him to stay, and almost did. Her body moved forward, and she inhaled as if to speak, but convention and propriety won the day. Robert stopped on the lawn at the base of the steps and turned. Miss Brody, can I ask you something? Abelia walked to the edge of the porch and leaned against the post. Of course, she said. I was wondering about your name, Abelia. I've never heard it before. It had been a long time since someone asked about her name, Abelia realized. 
Of course, as a child, she had to explain it to everyone. And when she first moved to Lily Springs, people always commented about her name. But that was many years ago. Decades, actually. Abelia was my mother's favorite plant, she said. Oh, yeah? What kind of plant is it? Abelia glanced down to the shrubs lining the entire length of the back porch and pointed. The green leaves were thick and waxy, yet were hard to see due to the flowers that had exploded into full bloom. Butterflies and bees danced between the white star-shaped petals, gathering the sweet nectar. The aroma was intoxicating, reminiscent of lilac, but more intense. Robert bent down and inhaled deeply. They're beautiful, he said. Abelia stepped down from the porch. Those were the very first things I planted in this garden many years ago. My mother worked on an estate in Rhode Island, and there she took care of the garden. She liked this so much, she stole some clippings and grew them herself. So this is an abelia plant? Abelia mosinensis, fragrant abelia. It comes from the Orient. Robert pressed his nose to a petal and inhaled again. The smell was sweet. He then stood and turned towards Abelia, looking directly into her eyes. He was not much taller than her, but that brief moment of eye contact, which was made more immediate due to the fact that he stood not more than three feet from her, caused her to avert her glance back to the flowering shrubs at her feet. Instinctively, she took a step back and felt her heart beating once again. It's a beautiful name, Robert said. It suits you well. No one had ever said such a thing to her before. She felt the heat of a blush on her cheek and suddenly felt a little foolish. Thank you, Mr. Bishop, she replied. Robert nodded. Good afternoon, Miss Brody. He then adjusted the bag on his shoulder and turned toward the path. As he passed under the dogwood tree, he turned his head and gave Abelia a smile. And then he was gone. Abelia stood there for a moment, alone in her garden, and wishing now that she had invited Robert to lunch. Makes you kind of want to have some gazpacho, huh? So that was chapter 12 of Lilac Wine and uh, Robert and Abelia meet again. And we get some more backstory, a little bit more about the mysterious Abelia. We get to find out where her name came from, the Abelia plant. When I first started writing this novel... Uh, her name wasn't Abelia; it was Annette, and uh, it, j- it just didn't it just didn't fit. And so, I struggled for a long time trying to come up with a name. And Abelia was something that I came across when I was doing research on plants and shrubs. You know, I wanted to gain some kind of knowledge of. You know, things that Abelia would know about, <laughs> I, I know nowhere near as much as she, obviously, but I do research when I have to, you know, and uh, and I came across an Abelia 
shrub and I saw a picture and it was actually in a catalog from the early 19 teens. And I thought that's it. That is her name. So we get to go back in time to over the Rhine, the neighborhood in Cincinnati, another nod to my favorite band. So if you haven't listened to the preview episodes that we did before we started getting into the novel, you can uh, go back to around December. And I did an episode about the creative influences behind the writing of this novel. And one of the biggest influences was a band called Over the Rhine. And they just came out with a new album. Love it. And they uh, named themselves after that neighborhood in Cincinnati. And so I wanted to set Abelia there. And I already mentioned in an earlier chapter that she lived there with her mom. But we got to meet Rima. Rima, who teaches her a bit about gazpacho. Now, the first time I ever had gazpacho was in Spain, actually. Back when I was in high school, there was a foreign exchange student who uh, came to my high school. Her name was Paloma, and she was just awesome. And she she became a good friend of mine, still is. We don't talk all that much, but you know, we're, we're connected across oceans and so forth. She and her husband live in Madrid, and they're just wonderful people. She, she made gazpacho for me. And I loved it. And so um, I asked her uh, how to make this. And she was kind of taken aback by that because she didn't have a recipe. It was something that she had been doing for a long time. And so she just kind of told me what it was. And I wrote it down in a notebook. And um, I embellished it a little bit. But the basic recipe that we have here in chapter 12 is what Paloma taught me about gazpacho back, oh man, a lot, 20, 20 something uh, years ago or so. Uh, and I just, I just love it. And so I wanted to, to add that to it too. And, you know, put in, you know, the stuff about the tomato, the tomatoes got a tremendous, history. And that's one of the things writing a historical novel when you're a history teacher and you just geek out on the history stuff. And I tend to put a lot of that in there. I don't know if it slows down the narrative at all. Um, I just like it. And I like taking those little side trips back in time. So I like doing that. I got a question a little bit ago about the pictures that I use when formulating the episodes. Each episode has a different picture. Uh, It may not come up all the time on your device when you you download or listen to the podcast. But if you go to lilacwinenovel.com, each episode has its own unique picture. And these are all pictures that are antique. They're from the time period. And there is this site, and I mentioned it before in an earlier making of post when I made the trailer for Lilac Wine. There is a site called fortapon.hu. And this is a site, it's a Hungarian site. 
And it's just a collection of amateur photographs taken by people living in Hungary for the last 100 years. So there are hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And I just love the pictures of people because that's what they basically all are people, uh, you know, from this time period. And so that's where I get a lot of these pictures. And I try to get a picture that captures something about the episode and, um, and I, and I post it, but all of them are antique and they all come from that time. And I want to give it, you know, uh, give it that feel. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. There's some, some, some fire smoldering there underneath the surface. I don't know if it happens too soon or not, but then again, we've all been there, right? Where we just got a feeling, you know, about a person and that, that, that feeling gets that heart racing just a little bit faster. In the next chapter, Billy and Robert go out uh, for a night on the town. Well, I shouldn't say the town. There's not much to do in Lily Springs, but they go out on a riverboat. And so we're going to uh, see what life was like on an excursion. And uh, we learn a little bit more, too, about Billy. The next chapter is actually the chapter when I realize that Billy is going to be playing a major role in this story. If you have any questions, please go to lilacwinenovel.com. You could go to the bulletin board there. You could ask a question on the bulletin board. You can send me an email. Um, you have any suggestions, comments, would love to hear them. Please you know, let me know what you think. Uh, in the meantime, tell your friends, subscribe. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. I am Bruce Janu, and I will see you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>